Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined by Greg Wyatt. He is the Director of Business Intelligence at PSA, which is Philippines Strategic Advisors. Greg has been on the show a few times before, and he is an absolute oracle of knowledge when it comes to anything and everything Philippines. They, uh, PSA, are risk advisors, and they have an incredible weekly publication that looks at the Philippine business and economic and risk landscape uh, and updates their readers on anything to do with this. They are a consultancy and advisory as well and work with a lot of international companies. So it's really good to have Greg on the show. Uh, and we cover everything this episode from elections to the COVID response, COVID recovery and vaccination data security, all of the sort of cybercrime that seems to be happening right now, and also the, of course, the BPO and outsourcing industry. Really good conversation with Greg. As always, I learn so much uh, from him whenever we get together and have a chat. So I uh, hope you enjoy. And as always, if you're on any of the show notes or want to get in touch with Greg, that is all in the show notes. That is at outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start, or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms, representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish Inside Outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. Greg Wyatt, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. How have you been? We, uh, we've been catching up. It's really been sort of a, every now and then and getting COVID updates. How have you been through the, uh, the recent spate of the, the third wave, is it? Yeah, well, I, I've started to travel again for work. So that makes me pretty happy to, to be able to get out of Makati. Has a, it's, it's certainly an improvement in my quality of life. So, Yeah. You know, as it comes up to Christmas, I I really reflect on last year as it was coming up to Christmas and I thought COVID was all over, like everything was opening up, the borders were opening up, travel was resuming. 
and right. uh, and then and then Delta came out and everything locked down again. And I think still the border control is even stricter than it was, you know, this time twelve months ago. So I, yes. there's rumours. Maybe we can get into this. well, let's get into it now, Greg. There were rumours that the borders might open up to tourism and travel. Have you heard anything on that line? Uh, no. So I, you know, I think I think it's being considered at some point down the line. Uh, but but as it is right now, you have to be coming from one of the green lane countries, and I think you know a, a lot of people are disappointed that their their country of origin is not in the green lane; they're on the yellow lane. Mm. So you still have a, a quarantine period to go through, uh, and you have to be vaccinated, of course, and have to have to be able to prove your vaccination status. I think that that uh, in some edge cases has been a problem for people coming in the country uh, that that. Uh, their their proof of vaccination is not accepted. Uh, in some in some rare cases, I think that's been an issue. Got it. And I, I think a lot of the travel is still restricted to Filipinos. It's not actually really open to the to the outside world, which yeah, which yeah, is it's great. Not, it's, but you have to you basically have to get your visa done ahead of time. Hmm. Uh, and you know, a lot of people when they came to work in the Philippines as a foreigner, they basically came on a tourist visa and then started the process of getting their work visa once they arrived here. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it was ever really supposed to be that, that way, but that was the de facto way that things were done. Pretty similar to what it is for a lot of countries, right? Um, and, uh, but yeah, now you really have to get all of that process done ahead of time to get your, your 9G and, and things like that before you can come here to work. Yeah, which, you know, I'm watching the uh, foreign direct investment numbers and it's amazing how much, Foreign direct investment is is sort of happening, and even right. record numbers. Yet people can't get in the country. You, know, you wonder how kind of people finalise deals and massive sort of infrastructure spending and IT parks and you know civil works when they can't get into the country. Yeah, so I mean, I think you know the overall the foreign direct investment numbers look pretty good, particularly compared to previous years in the Philippines and the context of what's going on. Uh, they're still not that impressive on a regional level. You know, the, the Philippines is still a pretty restrictive place when it comes to uh, foreign direct investment. You know, the, the basic things like the 60-40 uh, uh, rules and that you can't own land as a foreign company or a foreigner, that kind of thing. Um, and, then, and then there's always kind of the issue of our, what really is being measured in the foreign direct investment numbers. Like I think if you look at the latest batch, uh, a lot of it's debt, Right. Uh, and, you know, in some people's mind, if, if it's not equity, it's not foreign investment. Right. And I, I don't really think that that's that's fair either. But it, but a lot of what's being counted as foreign investment is not uh, what's at the forefront of people's mind is like a, a kind of big equity investment in a big project, things like that. Got it. Got it. So you'd assume with debt as well, then there's, there's kind of less of a direct investment. It's almost sort of through the through yeah, the, I, the, I think the I think that's fair. So there's there's debt, there's uh, reinvestment earnings. A lot of it's reinvestment, earnings. and then the the figures uh, are not at large. There are kind of in the in the legislative process, which I want to get through in some form uh, that would really excite foreigners. Uh, so they're they're reforming the retail trade law. Uh, they're reforming the Public Service Act. Uh, and then there's the Foreign Investment Act. And I think all, all three of those laws are going to get through in some form 
it's just a question of, of what the final version is. Got it. So, Greg, I'll maybe get you to introduce PSA, first of all, in case people yeah. haven't heard uh, previous episodes with you. And then I think, you know, headline topics, and this might become kind of apparent once you explain what you do, but maybe we can talk about COVID updates, vaccines, uh, the elections that are now, you know, tabled for May next year, and uh, data security. You know, there's a lot of hacking yep. going on. So, um, why is it that you know all about this stuff, Greg? Yeah, so we're we're PSA, a Philippine Strategic Advisor, uh, and we're a risk consultancy, right? So we're in the we're same industry as like global players like Control Risk, whole uh, Risk Advisory Group. Uh, the difference is, is that we're here centered or here uh, in Manila, in the Philippines, uh, where a risk consultant has an office in Singapore, Hong Kong, New York, London, things like that. Uh, so that's that's where we sit in the consulting industry. Uh, and we, we're we really looking at a broad set of risks for our clients. So I think there's there's kind of two ways. Uh, one of the problems in risk consulting is, is you actually have a lot of different service lines. Uh, but I think it's useful for us to group it into two categories. And one is we have a subscription reporting service that uh, clients sign up for on a subscription basis. And then some clients, they want a little bit extra, like they want a, a monthly briefing or they want a special report every quarter. Everybody's needs are kind of different in that regard. And then we have bespoke consulting work, like uh, reputational due diligence. We do a lot of that. We do security uh, assessments on, on uh, big investments that are being made in, in different parts of the country uh, and things of that nature. So uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly very interesting and it's certainly very interesting work to do in the Philippines. You gather an incredible amount of intelligence about every aspect of the Philippines, the economy, the, the environment, the security, you know, risk analysis, when you look at it like that, like like intelligence is so broad, isn't it? You know, do you how do you decide what you cover and what you kind of overlook? Yeah, so uh, I mean, I think that that is a challenge for the reporting service, and it's it's probably why some of the clients like to have uh, something uh, bespoke. Uh, so, you know, for example, the 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 environment environment in the Philippines is really complex, and there's certain issues that depending upon your industry, upon where you're operating are very relevant. And then there's other issues completely irrelevant, right? So I, you know, a great, one of the great examples with that is I have clients that are very concerned about the communist insurgency, right? The, uh, the NPA uh, operating in the countryside. And uh, for them, uh, the NPA might be the single biggest problem that they have as a company, right? So the mining industry, uh, agro-industrial, uh, some road construction, things like that, the communist insurgency is a big concern. And then for other parts of, of the Philippine business community, like the BPO industry, the NPA and the communist insurgency are absolutely irrelevant. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we have to we have to cover a broad set of things, uh, but you you do need to, it needs to go through like another level to make it relevant uh, to a particular client. And so either that's going to be uh, the job of the client receiving it, like their, uh, you know, their own security analyst or their own security manager, uh, the executives, things like that, uh, or we'll do it for you as kind of an extra step. Got it. 
Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating kind of industry. I listened to someone the other day and he said the risk is what is left over when you think you've thought of everything, you know, and, and just by definition then it's kind of everything. Right. If you've considered it, then it's not really the the real big risk, is it? It's, it's kind of once you've considered everything, it's that outlying aspect. Yeah, I, I- I do think it really helps to be a generalist because it puts everything into context, right? So, uh, you know, some of the best terrorism analysts in the Philippines, they do terrorism 100% of the time. You know, they do all these great interviews with terrorism suspects and they've been studying the issue for 20 years. Well, they'll always tell you that terrorism is like the next uh, biggest threat that everybody faces, right? Mm. Uh, and I think they just kind of lack context sometimes, uh, if they don't have more of a, a generalist perspective. So, I mean, I think that that's something that we do a pretty good job on of uh, helping our clients think about the right kinds of issues. That's a good point, actually, isn't it? You know, if you're a hammer, you see everything as a nail. So I suppose if you if you focus on just one kind of terrorism, then you're going to interpret everything through that lens. Whereas if you're a generalist, you can kind of apportion and proportionalize all of the kind of risks and and areas yeah and it, and it you really have to one of the fun things about the job is is you know you learn everything about the risks and that's one skill set and, and area of expertise but then for every client you also have to learn enough about their industry to help make it relevant to them uh, and that's the same thing with like reputational due diligence and things like that you know you have all your skills as a as an analyst and then you have a client in the wheat importation industry and all of a sudden, you have to learn enough about the wheat importation industry in order to take your, your core competency and make it relevant to them. So that you know their vulnerabilities and, and their interests yes. and security. So you can make it relevant, yeah. So you can make the, 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 uh, the context, so you have the appropriate context of their industry and how they could be affected. I found it a little bit ironic with the outsourcing industry, of course. There was a big conversation around BCP's business continuity planning prior to COVID, you know, and it seemed to yeah. reach a bit of a crescendo and everyone was talking about getting their secondary and tertiary facilities and backup operations and things like that. And it was all about sort of a geographical backup in case of tsunamis and typhoons and volcanoes and things like this. And right. no one had considered uh, the concept of, of COVID and everyone was knocked for six, you know. It's, it's interesting yeah, even when you sort of focus on a solution it's not necessarily the right solution yeah so I, I you know i think unfortunately like risk consulting and business continuity it's one of those things that kind of can be overwhelmed by jargon uh and i used to tell people pre-covid or at the start of covid actually too i was talking about this that for for most kind of office-based industries your business continuity meant two things it meant having a, a second work site in another location uh, and, and it meant being able to work from home. Mm. Uh, and if you could do those two things in the business, in the, uh, uh, BPO industry, you're going to do pretty well. Right. And I think that having that second work site is still really important. Uh, in the context of Metro Manila, it's important for the earthquake risk. Mm. Right. And for example, the, the Philippine government is in the process of implementing a plan, uh, where they're basically going to move 40% of the, government's capacity from Metro Manila to Clark 
so that when the earthquake happens, which is going to happen sometime uh, between tomorrow and 200 years from now, unfortunately, that's the way things work with ge uh, geological risks, that they're going to be able to keep 40% uh, of the government going. Uh, and it, this, you could think about it the same way for the BPO industry. I do think it was helpful to have multiple sites in different countries uh, operating during the, the COVID pandemic. But the big thing was, is what, what is your capacity to do work from home? Yeah. And I think, you know, as everything moves into the cloud, even though it's not a direct BCP activity, just there's, yeah. there's so much more redundancy in systems when you can just kind of access anything from anywhere from a laptop. Whereas, right. you know, 20 years ago, when you had all of your files in a filing cabinet in a particular location, you're very much tied to, to the sort of uh, the accessibility of one location, weren't you? Yeah. Uh, well, and, you know, I think so many, uh, many people have a lot of their stuff in their email. Uh, you know, even if you, you lose your access to your hard drive and things like that. You, people often find that they have what they need in their email account and things like that. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. So Greg, let's, what should we tackle first? Do you want to give us an overview of COVID from your perspective? This is of course the, the, the Philippine perspective uh, and yeah. also the, the vaccine rollout. How are we going with that? Sure. So I, you know, I think in terms of the disease right now, we're in the middle of a, dramatic drop in cases. Uh, and really all of the indicators are starting to look good. So the, the cases are falling uh, at about 40% uh, per week. Uh, the uh, positivity rate is going down, right? So, you know, as cases have fallen, some people have uh, been saying, oh, well, maybe we're not testing enough, but the number of uh, the proportion of tests coming back positive uh, has continue to go down. It's about 10% now. At one point, it was almost 30% uh, during the latest uh, peak. And so um, to put that in context, the peak was uh, probably about two months ago, and it was maybe 25,000 yeah. cases a day, and now it's down to about 4,500 cases. Right. right. And now it's it's about 1,000 cases per day in Metro Manila, and Metro Manila has kind of always been the epicenter uh, of the pandemic in the Philippines. Uh, so really all the, the indicators are pretty good. I think um, it's a little tricky for people to, to get a complete certain grasp over the healthcare system, right? So there, there are a lot of official figures uh, and those are looking better too. You know, I think the, the number one thing to look at is ICU occupancy because mm -hmm. ICU occupancy fills up first, uh, particularly at the, the highest end uh, private hospitals. Uh, basically, you know, the, the Philippine healthcare system is kind of uneven is, is the way you would describe it in the industry, that there are some excellent hospitals uh, that have great care up to international standards, uh, but there's not a lot of hospitals in that category. Um, so the best hospitals tended to fill up first over the course of the pandemic. Uh, and, and right now they are reporting the best hospitals in Metro Manila and other places are reporting that they have capacity in their ICU uh, uh, wards. But there's still some concern amongst some of the professional associations, for example. Uh, so like the Philippine College of Physicians is very skeptical of the official numbers. Uh, some of the uh, healthcare uh, labor unions are still saying that people are resigning. Uh, and you, you do hear reports of, of uh, shortage of nurses, things like that in, in some of the hospitals. 
Um, so, and, and overall, the, the official data, you'll even hear the uh, Department of Health occasionally say something like that they, they can't track how many people are in the emergency room waiting to be admitted. Although I don't think that that's a problem right now. It certainly was, was a problem, you know, within the last two months uh, and, it, and in previous surges, um, like in April and things like that. So, right. uh, yeah, things, things are getting better, uh, but there's still some, some question marks, I should say. Things in other countries, you know, people are, the, the daily cases are really dropping and it, it can be attributed to vaccination and getting towards herd immunity, whereas that's not really the case in the Philippines, though, is it? We're not anywhere near sort of a herd immunity yet. Yeah, so uh, Metro Manila is substantially more uh, vaccinated than the rest of the country. Uh, it's about 59% vaccinated. One of the regular confusions uh, is, is that uh, the, the figures that, that are reported by the government, their percentage of the target uh, population. So the government has a target of vaccinating 70% 70, 70 of the population, and they've vaccinated 80-something percent uh, of that 70%. And so oh, it wow. comes out to about, uh, in Metro Manila, in Metro Manila, and it comes out to about a uh, 59% in Metro Manila. Uh, nationwide, it's certainly a lot slower. Uh, I think it's 23%. Actually, we can, I can look that up while we're, while we're talking. Yeah, yeah. And is that fully vaccinated, like the two doses? Yes. Wow. Yeah. That is quite impressive. And then obviously the 70% that they are targeting, they are the sort of the economic contributors of society, I assume. Yeah, well, the, the, unfortunately, I think the 70% figure, okay, so here it is, 25% uh, of Metro Manila, uh, sorry, 25% of all of the Philippines has had at least one dose, and 19% uh, is fully vaccinated. So that nationwide, the figures are really lagging behind, and that's kind of what we expected. Um, you know, in terms of disaster response, uh, a lot of things uh, in the Philippines depend upon local government units. And really, the, the local government units are at the forefront of combating the pandemic, and they just vary in capacity. The, the local government units in Metro Manila are much more well-funded, much more capable than local government units in the province. And so also, I think that Metro Manila has been prioritized, at least somewhat, in terms of supply as the, the economic center of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. Because Metro that, Manila, it... it, it produces about 60% of the economic activity. Is that right? Like it is yeah, critical. Greater Metro Manila. So when, right. once you go to the, to the neighboring provinces in central Luzon, things like that, the 70% target is a little outdated in a lot of ways, you know? Uh, so the, the target population of 70% first came about uh, with older variants that were not as transmissible, like the, the original, uh, COVID-19 variants that, that at the start of the pandemic, uh, B117, but then it, Delta is so infectious that it's, it's pretty well agreed to that you need to get 85%, 90% vaccination before you can start talking about herd immunity. Uh, so, yeah. And it's a long way, it's a long way off, isn't it? Because yeah. in the Philippines, well, they, they tend to ignore sort of certain aspects of the economy you know like they they talk about unemployment rates at kind of whatever seven ten percent but they kind of overlook that you know 50 percent of the 
population don't have a job and have never had a job, but they just don't right. sort of count them within the employment pool. Whereas you can't really do that with vaccinations and health. You know, every human is a human and they can either get sick or ill or or pass it on to others. So you really yeah, so need I, I think government officials, the entire company. Sorry. Yeah, government officials in the Philippines are really obsessed with good statistics. They're, they're obsessed with good news, mm. right? And uh, I think it's not that their statistics are inaccurate. It's that they kind of uh, cherry pick the ones uh, sometimes. They cherry pick the ones that uh, make the government look the best. It's kind of right? a, a segmentation to suit the, the outcome, isn't it, almost? Right. Yeah. So if you look at the vaccination rate in the Philippines compared to other countries in Southeast Asia, it's pretty awful. Right. The Philippines is only ahead of Myanmar, mm-hmm. uh, you know, civil war, uh, torn country. Uh, and then all the other countries in Southeast Asia are ahead of the Philippines right now, uh, including Vietnam, which kind of started its vaccination campaign much later than the Philippines did, started purchasing vaccines much later. Uh, so, I mean, there, there's just some good news, but uh, it, I think it's usually useful to, to put these kind of things in a comparative context to make sense of them. And uh, when you do that with the vaccination rate and compare the Philippines to other countries in Southeast Asia, it doesn't, doesn't look so good. Mm. But it is happening though, isn't it? You know, which is the positive thing and maybe right. also it will continue to ramp up. And, you know, you see this even with Australia, like they were very slow to get going with the vaccination program. But then as soon yeah. as they got the infrastructure in place, they very quickly caught up. And these things can often take quite a while to get the infrastructure in place. And then they sort of, they kind of hockey stick up once it's in place. So hopefully the Philippines right. is still getting that infrastructure in place and then you know, eventually the vaccines will catch up. Yeah, and I think, you know, that it's, it seems pretty clear that supply is not the issue right now. Uh, so there's about 40 million doses that are waiting to be used in the Philippines at the current moment. And they're, they're out in the provinces with the local government units uh, at various stages in that administration process. Uh, so the problem right now is more about administering the vaccines and vaccine hesitancy, and also how those two things interact. I think, you know, when you hear vaccine hesitancy, uh, you think about really diehard committed anti-vaxxers. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty clear that that uh, th- that number is relatively small, but there's a lot of other people who it may be actually very difficult for them to go get vaccinated. You know, if, uh, if you have to take a day off of work and you can't afford to take the day off of work to go get vaccinated, uh, the rate of elderly people in the Philippines to get vaccinated was kind of slow. And if you think about it, you know, it's difficult for elderly people to go out of their home to the vaccination center. So you have to come up with some alternative way to get them vaccinated. Uh, so I think those it's most, a lot of the problems are in between those two things of vaccine hesitancy and getting the process correct. Uh, and I think the process, a lot of the problems were, were dealt with very well in Metro Manila. Uh, so there are lessons that can be applied to the province and stuff like that. Uh, but I think that a lot of leaders in kind of rural areas outside of Metro Manila thought it was going to just be a problem of supply. And it was, it was never just going to be a problem of supply. It's going to be about throughput and administration and vaccines uh, and also uh, about vaccine hesitancy. 
Yeah, I think like anything in the country, it's actually it's the logistics, isn't it? It's actually getting stuff, the the distribution, the setup of stuff, the the infrastructure. You know, it's a massive, massive operation to get everyone in the country double vaccinated. Right. Right. And, and uh, there's been a lot of challenges in that, like the uh, you know, for a long time the vaccine certificate uh, was not well centralized. Every local government unit was using their own version of, of the vaccine certificate. Uh, there's been a little bit of progress on that, but I think uh, it can still be difficult to get your official Philippine government vaccination certificate. Uh, they're prioritized get, giving that to people who are traveling abroad, and, you know, the, the OFWs that are going to work in, in other countries. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And if, you know, what's your prognosis, Sam? What's, what's your outlook for the for COVID now, of course, you know, we don't know if there's going to be another strain, so don't comment right. on that. But but just as it's progressing now, do, do you think that the company's the country's going to start to open up and relax a bit and we're going to get vaccinated? And what are your what's yeah. your outlook? So at the current rate, uh well, so I, I think first, you know, it's difficult to measure vaccine hesitancy over time, right? So in the summer, uh, only about 45% of people were willing to be vaccinated. And now it's higher than that. The latest polling that came out, about 60% of people are willing to be vaccinated. So that's certainly a big improvement, right? But, you know, if you want to get to that 70% target, you have to find that extra uh, 10%. You have to convince them somehow. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's difficult to predict how that's going to happen. So that's a big caveat over everything. Uh, but, I kind of hope the Filipinos, they're pretty compliant, aren't they? And I think whereas, you know, an American anti-vaxxer, you could not get them to get the vaccine, you know. For, yes. Yeah, so absolutely. I, I agree. I don't think people are, there's not as many people who are kind of ideologically committed to being an anti-vaxxer in the Philippines. Hmm. Uh, they're it's hesitant. It's apathy. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, I, I guess compared to some other countries, uh some in the private sector are kind of disappointed that uh, there's not been a lot of clarity about uh, what kind of incentives you can offer as an employer, uh, whether or not you can have a vaccine mandate as an employer. I mean, it's at one point it was very clear uh, that you can't mandate your employees are vaccinated. Uh, mm -hmm. But within the last two weeks, particularly because there's certain businesses, they're only allowed to open if the employees are vaccinated and the different cabinet officials have said different things about whether or not you can tell people to stay home from work and not get paid unless they're vaccinated, whether or not you can consider vaccination uh, in the hiring process. Uh, so the, the Department of Labor and Employment, for example, is, has become, the secretary has become quite supportive of those kind of measures. Uh, but the Department of Justice says, you know, the law is the law and you can't do it. So I, I think that that's, a little disappointing in terms of how the government is handling uh, vaccine hesitancy. There's been a lot of tough talk, but not a lot of tough policy in terms of uh, tackling the issue of vaccine hesitancy. And I think in terms of the public awareness campaign, uh, there hasn't really been a government-funded public awareness campaign to combat vaccine hesitancy. It's, it's been largely funded by the private sector, what, what, there's, what there has been, or funded by different local government units. That uh, no work, no no vaccine, no pay, you know, Dole, the Department of Labor has really struck out against that. But it is, it's a very difficult situation, isn't it? I don't think yeah. anyone knows how to handle this globally. You know, every right. 
country is kind of fumbling through this because it's quite uncharted territory, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, you do talk to, I talk to uh, regional managers, for example. You know, a lot of my clients are regional managers for Southeast Asia, for example. And, and in that context, you know, they feel like, you know, other places they can mandate an employee gets vaccinated or they can clearly make it part of the hiring process. And here, we're, we're not there yet. Philippines is not there yet. Well, we have the elections coming up in May. It's, it's truly well underway. What do you see as the, the sort of risks and opportunities with, with a new president? Yeah, so I think, well, there's a few different ways we could go at this. But the, the big thing about the overarching issue in, in political risk in the Philippines is, is that you have about six years. Uh, if you're in a highly regulated industry, you have about six years of relative policy certainty after someone gets elected. And then the next president can change everything. So for highly regulated industries, I mean, things like mining. Uh, you know, the President Duterte ordered, uh, issued earlier in his, his term, uh, issued an executive order banning open pit mining. And really all, all the mining in the Philippines is open pit mining. Mm. Um, uh, other regulated industry like water, uh, electricity, uh, power, things like that. You only have about a six-year window if there's any uh, doubt uh, in terms of what the policy is going to be uh, over the long term. You got a six-year window that you know what the policy is going to be. So elections are really exciting from that perspective. There, I think there's a lot of companies that are going to want to get in early uh, after the new president is elected and they have some certainty uh, about what the policy in, in their industry is going to be. Uh, and then there's going to be a little bit of scrutiny of some of the, the deals that were made between the government and the private sector um, over the last six years. So, you know, if you, if you signed a deal within the last six years with the government and you're in one of these highly regulated industries, uh, that contract might be scrutinized, right? Depending upon who gets elected. Uh, but, but also there's always a tremendous amount of op optimism anytime a new president uh, comes into power. So there's certainly opportunities there too. Do you see it as a free and fair election? Do you think Duterte is going to try and uh, secure power? Yeah, so I think I, I get asked this a lot and I don't think that there's really much evidence uh, on which to make that judgment right now, right? So it's, it's pretty clear it's a high stakes election. Uh, you know, with the whether or not the Philippine government cooperates with the International Criminal Court, that's basically going to be decided uh, in the next election. And the International Criminal Court can't do a lot uh, without the cooperation of the Philippine government. You know, you, you have some people associated with the court or that are in that international legal scholars who seem to think otherwise. But I think uh, if you're not part of that crowd, uh, it's very difficult to see uh, you know, who's going to enforce the arrest warrant? Who's going to help the International Criminal Court do the investigation? It's got to be the Philippine government in most cases. Uh, so it is a really high stakes election. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And then there's also questions about like issues that have other democracies have struggled with uh, over the past 10 years, let's say, about, uh, you know, the way that information is spread on the internet. The, the fact that everybody's kind of living in their own echo chamber. 
mm-hmm. uh, the polarization of society. There, you know, there's there's a version of the culture war uh, that is ongoing in the Philippines. So there's some risk factors, but uh, in terms of of whether or not uh, somebody's going to try something and to cause some sort of political instability in the elections. I think it's way too early to say. I think I think we'll start to we'll only really be able to look at like specific scenarios like that. Uh, you know, one to three months out uh, from the election, and then it should start to become a lot more clear. Uh, you know, Philippine elections always have a level of cheating, uh, but it's generally pretty decentralized, right? So the the one thing that the most common issue is vote buying. Uh, which actually became a big issue in the news this week because people were commenting about vote buying. But uh, vote buying is pretty common. Uh, there are always reports of, of uh, like local mayors, for example, paying people to vote for a particular slate of candidates. Uh, so it's there's pretty safe bets that vote buying is going to be part of the next election. Uh, but I I don't think that that's really what people have in mind. You know, they're, they things that people are concerned about are some kind of uh, larger scheme or some kind of political instability, something like that. Some major candidate refusing to recognize the election results and doing something extra legal. Historically, they've always been quite dangerous affairs, haven't they? Sort of the the electioneering and, uh, you know, there's been politicians and reporters that have been shot down and things do you see that as potentially escalating this time and you know it's no secret that the Duterte administration for example isn't necessarily a fan of uh, journalism and and open reporting of events so do you see any of those things escalating in this election that's that's a good example of of things being relevant to some sectors and being completely irrelevant to others right so uh yeah it's it's well agreed that Philippine elections are violent by kind of international standards or even, you know, within Asian context, an Asian context, they're violent. Uh, but the vast majority of, that, of the violence is particularly within the last 10 years, let's say is assassinations of candidates. Uh, so yeah, you know, if you're a candidate, you might want to think about having a bulletproof car and things like that. Uh, but it's not so relevant that kind of violence is, is targeted, right? So it's not so relevant to the private sector, for example. Uh, you know, it's not relevant to most international organizations operating in the Philippines. Uh, and it's, but like you mentioned, journalists. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's relevant to journalists too. So it depends upon on what sector you're in. You know, I've, I've seen numbers before that like uh, about 50 to 150 elected officials in the Philippines are killed every month. And now... Not all of those are uh, assassinated. Yeah. Well, there's first, there's a lot of elected officials in the Philippines. All, right. If you go all the way down to the barangay level, you know, uh, the barangay counselors, uh, I think there's about 10 barangay counselors in each right. barangay. Which is like the village chiefs. Yeah. The yeah. It's the lowest level of the of, uh, lowest government unit in the Philippines. Right. It's, it's like a village or a neighborhood, things like that. Uh, and... But some of those killings are uh, interpersonal. A lot of them actually are, are kind of interpersonal, you know, romance schemes, mm. someone felt insulted, something like that. A lot of them are criminal. Uh, the, the elected official is a victim of criminal violence. And then 
some proportion of them. And that's really hard to determine the motive, you know, the breakdown of those three. Uh, some proportion of them are politically motivated. Got it. Gosh, that's a big number, isn't it? Yeah. Pays yeah, to but, but for most of my chief. clients, for example, it's, it's irrelevant, right? Yeah. You know, I, I guess I do. I have some clients maybe like in uh, uh, the aid community, right? The non-governmental organizations that maybe they interact with a lot of local government officials. Mm. And so they need to start to think as we get into election season about do they need to change their procedures about, you know, do they ban travel with uh, elected officials, for example? That might be a really smart step to take. Um, where do you meet with elected officials if you have to meet with them during uh, election season? That kind of thing. But, you know, for, you know, you're mostly in the BPO industry, right? It, for the BPO industry, it's one of those things that's irrelevant. Most, mm -hmm. of the, most of the violence happens in the countryside too. There's only a, a little bit of, you know, there, there was one killing in 2019, the campaign manager for one of the candidates for uh, Makati uh, was killed. And actually the police determined that that was not politically motivated. I, I think that that can be difficult, of course, to make that determination. But uh, most of the violence is, is in the countryside. Got it. Gosh. So on to another uh, type of, security data security uh yeah. there seems to be a big flare-up in terms of uh, hacking and uh there's a lot of ransomware going around globally and trojans and things like this and also you know a certain amount of philippine cyber crime uh, what's your take on that whole situation yeah so it, it is interesting I, I i guess just for a little bit of context you know there's there's continues to be uh, a question about whether or not crime is getting worse in the Philippines. And uh, some citizen groups uh, really believe it's getting worse. You know, you talk to the typical homeowners association that has a Viber group and in the middle class, and they're really worried about crime. But the, the police uh, and uh, the official statistics that are available, that kind of thing, show, don't show an increase in, in violent crime. But with cybercrime, it's different. Everybody agrees that cybercrime has gotten significantly worse during the pandemic. Um, if you talk to people in the private sector, uh, cybersecurity experts, they think it's worse. If you talk to the, the Philippine police, they think it's worse. Uh, we see more cases in, and are involved in more cases where uh, clients have been victimized in different ways. Um, a lot of what we see, though, is not really sophisticated. It, I think it's almost misleading to call it cybercrime. It's, it's uh, more scams that happen online, mm. right? Uh, so we see a lot of business email compromise, which is basically somehow someone gets access to uh, an email account or even just uses a fake email account, spoofs it, you know, changes the name and things like that from coming from a different email account. Uh, and they request a, a fraudulent transfer, you know, pretending to be your boss, something like that. Uh, and those happen constantly. I think businesses are constantly undersold with those kind of things. Um, just because they're, they're pretty easy modus operandi to turn, uh, to turn it into cash. That's how you turn it into a, your, your, your crime into money, right? Get someone to make a fraudulent transfer. And I think fortunately, we're still in a position where 
uh, if your financial team and the people making processing payments and things like that, uh, pick up the phone and confirm uh, changes and details and things like that over the phone. So, you know, the finance team gets an email says, uh, oh, you know, this time when you make the payment this month, please send it to this, these new, this new account. We've had to change our bank account. You know, pick up the phone and confirm that change before you make the transaction. Um, Do you see any, yeah. because, you know, you're right, really, like, really, that is just, it's kind of petty crime that has been right. taken online, isn't it? You know, there's always yes. going to be petty yeah. crime out exactly, there and exactly, to, exactly. to mix it in with kind of the complex cyber criminals is, is maybe not the right kind of matching. There, there's a big kind of opportunity potentially on the doorstep of criminals in the Philippines is that, you know, the Philippines is home to the outsourcing industry, which is effectively a backdoor into some of the most prominent right. and powerful and largest companies in the world. Do right. you see, you know, and even down in Cebu, there was, uh, you know, uh, a BPO operation that were uh, uh, stealing from Google effectively, like taking yeah. like, Google uh, uh, vouchers to the tune of millions of dollars, I think. So do you see many opportunities like that crop up? Um, do, you, do you sort of think that there's potentially big open doors to do that or you know, do you see that as fair, not really a, a big concern? So I think, I think it has to have gotten worse with the pandemic just because, you know, so many of the, the countermeasures to it prior to the pandemic uh, were things like security cameras in the office, right? So there were really like physical security measures to keep people from stealing data and coordinating in fraudulent ways and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think it, it, the threat of it has to have gotten worse. And, you know, the, the Google incident you're talking about, that happened during the pandemic. Mm. Um, so, yeah, be, the thing about long-term trends, though, and this is true with so many forms of crime, is, is it's very difficult to monitor trends in industry-specific crime, right? Uh, so, I mean, crime statistics in general in the Philippines are not great they're really focused on robbery, theft, uh, you know, index, index crimes is what they're called. Um, murder, homicide, uh, assault, things like that. And then the organizations don't really, you know, they have a concern about that in terms of employee safety, but that's not the, the big threat for them in terms of crime. The big threat is the industry specific stuff, right? So if you're in the fast moving consumer goods industry, you're worried about counterfeit goods, right? And, Counterfeit goods and threats to your supply chain are constant, um, but there's always limited data. You know, you have, most of it, I think we always resort to talking to people in uh, industries with a similar risk profile, right? Uh, so, you know, if you're building a renewable energy plant out in the countryside and you want to know about crime, uh, maybe you go... Uh, ideally find someone else in renewable energy and see what, how they're being impacted or talk to someone in a kind of a related industry, like maybe conventional power and see, you know, are they having people stealing scrap metal from the site? Are people stealing fuel from the site? That kind of thing Got it. to try to get a sense of, of what the sophisticated uh, criminal threats are. And I think it, one of the things you also notice is, is that industries 
sometimes they cooperate very well together on these issues. And actually, I think the BPO industry is a good example of where there is a lot of cooperation. There's a, there's a really good uh, BPO security association. They share a lot of information with each other as security managers. And it's not, you know, it's, it's not a big deal to cooperate. But I think sometimes other industries aren't like that. You know, in the fast-moving consumer goods industry where the competition is very intense, I don't think they cooperate very well on uh, security issues. Got it, got it. And I think, you know, the outsourcing industry, it's kind of a technology industry, but it's it's completely people run and the people can flow through the businesses. And, you know, whereas if it's FMCG, for example, you know, you've got product, you've got sort of secure, it seems to be able to be tied down a lot more, whereas outsourcing is kind of the flow of people. It's a people industry. Yeah. So it could but, potentially spread so much easier. Yeah. Well, pre-pandemic, you know, we do know that, that there were uh, recruiters, right. In hanging out in coffee shops near uh, BPOs that uh, would try to recruit people in the BPO industry and uh, get them to steal personally identifiable information for very small amounts of money. Right. Uh, and really? you know, a lot of, a lot of these people were part of kind of, they had kind of like a multinational connection. Uh, like a lot of them were Indian, for example. Right. And, you know, you can imagine the same type of crime happens in the BPO industry in India. So there's kind of a syndicated element to it, uh, an international syndicated element to it. So, wow. you know, I think that that's become a little bit more difficult, but then there are internal syndicates that develop as well. Uh, and then there's some of it's just really uh, not very sophisticated at all, right? So, you know, you have cases where like a, a call center agent uh, starts using a client's credit card and they start, you know, buying uh, food online with it mm. and, 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 you know, getting deliveries through Grab and, and uh, uh, you know, Uber Eats and the equivalent and things like that. And those people are caught very quickly. But the sophisticated stuff is, is more of a problem. Got it. And, you know, honestly, I keep my ear close to the ground and I, I think you would hear if there was any development of any sort of trends in crime or any sophisticated level of crime and you really don't hear anything in the industry, do you? Yeah, I think they're, they're isolated cases. I think there, there are big questions that people don't like to talk about about what the best way to prevent crime is uh, and how that works with the work-from-home environment, um, that kind of thing. Um, <coughs> But yeah, I think that's I very difficult, huh? You know, as the industry, as the world seems to be turning more home-based, I think they're yeah. kind of forgetting. Like, how do you ensure security? How do you ensure standards? And how do you ensure right. training? And, uh, I think chatbots tend to work really well. Uh, you know, you look at some of the security features that people have built into chatbots, where you can talk to a call center agent, and it's a real person talking to you. But then it, when it comes time for you to provide your credit card information, they don't ever see the credit card information. Yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, a new um, block comes up and they they remind you, you know, don't tell me your credit card information, but please put it in the block below. Yeah, uh, I think there needs to be a lot of investment in that. Like, you know, you can have a 20, 30-minute conversation with a, with a call operative and two minutes of that needs to be highly secure when you give them your right. credit card details. But the other 18 minutes does not need to be secure. So they really right. need to kind of split out those two activities, don't they? And if you can just have a highly secure environment when you're sharing that highly secure information. 
and then the rest is is okay. Yeah, I think some companies do it pretty well right now, right? Like uh, Netflix does it pretty well right now, to be honest. Uh, and then other places don't. So, got it, got it. Interesting. And what are you seeing in terms of the BPO industry? We've had a lot of changes as as you know with the work from home and the remote thing and. COVID, obviously, but hopefully everything's kind of normalizing. Throughout the COVID period, the outsourcing industry has grown incredibly, you know, yes. over the last two years, nearly grown kind of 20, 30%. So COVID certainly hasn't held it back. Uh, are you right. seeing any trends or anything of note in the industry? Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely think it's grown, right? And my first reaction is to be skeptical about everything. And so, you know, you have the official figures, but then also uh, you see things, uh anecdotally. So the real estate industry says that they really depend upon the BPO industry. Uh, the, um, my clients speaking to them, you know, they're, they're growing in terms of the number of people that they're employing. So I think that that's the first thing is that it's certainly the, uh, the industry is growing. Um, and there are some issues, right? So I think for, for a lot of, uh, BPOs that operate in the PESA zones. So, uh, Philippine economic zones, um, they've, they have to come back to 10% status in the office. And that, particularly in September, was hard for a lot of PPOs. And I think uh, that was certainly a challenge, thinking about how do they bring people back in the middle of the pandemic. So they didn't, they didn't really get clarity on what the rules were. You know, under normal circumstances, because they're special economic zones, they have to be 90% in the office and only maximum 10% work from home. Uh, and that was uh, very difficult to uh, plan for, right? They, they didn't get clarity until September 9th that they were going to get their extension and that they could operate only at 10%. Mm. Uh, in and the, the appeal has just been denied as well, hasn't it? Right, right. And I think, you know, the, the PESA itself, I think the Department of Trade and Industry are both supportive of having more work from home within the PESA zones. Uh, but the, uh, the Department of Finance and the Bureau of Internal Revenue is against it uh, and have a more strict interpretation of the law. Um, so I, I guess, you know, it's one of those things, a, a new administration could, could come in and have an entirely different interpretation, uh, but it might require new legislation and that's just a lengthy process, right? Getting anything through the, the legislative process, uh, particularly now, right before an election, it's not going to happen. Um, it just takes takes a long time. And, so, and it's got to be prioritized by the administration and, and things like that. If you have a friendly administration that wants to pass a law that BPOs can work in PESA zones uh, and have more people working from home, it could happen. Uh, but uh, it's not going to happen right now, right? So I yeah. think that's, that's been difficult, even to the point where, you know, in September, when we were in the middle of a surge and, and cases were really high, I think there were BPOs that were considering just not complying with the rule. Uh, and, and I think it, it varied depending upon, you know, I know some, some BPOs were like, depending upon their, the kind of work that they did, they were operating at 30% capacity uh, despite the surge, right? Because they had to, because of the nature of their work. But then there were other ones uh, that have found it very difficult to, to be, go back to 10% even. 
Well, the BPOs are between a rock and a hard spot because they've got their, the PESA or their sort of regulatory environment that they have to comply with. Then they've got their employees. You know, they might right. not necessarily want to come back and then you've got to force them. And then you've got the clients as well and they might have their own preferences right. as well. So it's really difficult, isn't it? And especially, as you say, when this deadline came and it was pretty much within the peak of the peak uh, of the resurgence and yeah. there's a lot of fear you know a lot of the employees are, 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 are feeling unsafe and then right. of course you know all of the kind of the leaders in the US like all of Google and Facebook and Twitter are all saying you don't have to come back to the office ever it's uh, right. you know it's not really up to the BPOs to make a decision on any of this is it yeah yeah exactly I think in the long run I, I really do believe that Kind of the market, the labor market's going to adjust because I think there are people out there that don't want to work from home their whole life, right? Yeah. Know, particularly here, right? Like the, the the work environment in the Philippines is is really great. It, you know, pre pandemic, uh, it you know it's very much like a family. You know, mm. big companies have a, a dance team. Uh, everybody has a, a a crazy Christmas party. Yeah, uh, stuff like that. And I think a lot of people want to go back to that at some point, but it's a question of the timing of it in the, you know, in the middle of the, the largest surge that we've had so far. Uh, and then also, you know, you're going to lose some people. There's some people who are not, who don't want to go back to the office. They don't want to have to commute. They don't feel safe right now. They're, they're just not inclined to take risks. You know, uh, you know, I, I have analysts that, that write really well, but would never want to go in the field, right? We didn't hire them because they're brave. We, we hire them because they, they're great writers, for example, things like that. And uh, so I, I think it is, it is difficult and it's more difficult because there's not a lot of long-term certainty. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people are choosing their sides now, you know, whether they have loyalty to their company or to their career or to their lifestyle uh, and then they're choosing, you know, there's just so many different paths and options opening up in front yeah. of them, you know, and then there's this sort of growing opportunity of people going freelance. There's so much freelance work out right. there now. And uh, right. it's, it's, I mean, it's fantastic to have such opening opportunities, but I do worry about the kind of existing infrastructure and the existing commercial office space and the existing processes that have been built over the last 20, 30 years of, kind of structure and routine that's just all gone out the window in six months. Right. And I think in, it's interesting because, you know, the, the economy has been hurt so badly by the pandemic, but I think we're already seeing a kind of uh, K-shaped recovery, right? So, you know, if you're a employee in the Philippines and you're capable of working remotely and you're pretty savvy and you perform well in that kind of environment, you probably have more opportunities now than you did pre-pandemic. Right? right. And so I think, uh, you know, some companies are finding that, oh, like, you know, our employees are working from home uh, and they have less daily attachment to the company. Uh, maybe that makes them a little less loyal or whatever. Uh, and uh, their skills are in much greater demand all around the world. And they could be working for any number of freelance companies, any number of industries, things like that. So I think, uh you know, from a labor market perspective, the, the kind of high-performing call center agent, I think, is, is, in, a, is in a strong place to demand uh, a good salary right now. Yeah, I suppose it mimics the rest of the world, yeah, like in the U.S. You know, if you're, a, if you're a capable 
developer, then you can absolutely call the shots. Whereas if you don't have that many skills, you're you know you're still on minimum wage and you've still got to go into the the shop and do your eight hours. And it's kind of widening the divide between the the kind of haves and have-nots. Right. Right. Crazy. Well, Greg, maybe that's uh, that's not too positive an area to leave it on. But well, let's say you know, are you you're fairly positive about the future? Then we've got elections, we've got the vaccinations, we've got COVID, we've got BPO industry growing. Are you fairly confident about everything now? Yeah. So I, th- I think 2022 COVID's still going to be an issue, but I think we might be able to get away with kind of the most cost-effective measures uh, to to combat the pandemic rather than the, the shutdowns and the, the lockdowns and all that kind of stuff, you know? So I think we'll probably still be wearing our mask when we go into the airport, when we're on a plane, maybe when we go into a convenience store, retail, things like that. Uh, and, you know, I, I hope, I tell people that they should really think about investing in better ventilation if they haven't already. Uh, that kind of thing is going to stay with us. Um, but I hope that the, the worst of it is behind us. You know, I think there's, there's still, as of this week even, there's still some more concerns about variants uh, and things like that. And those are legitimate concerns, but I don't think anybody knows the future uh, when it comes to variants. Uh, you know, I think with the elections coming up, uh, Philippine elections are always a time of, of great optimism after they're over, right? Uh, presidents start with big uh, coalitions, um, they're, they start off very popular. There's always a honeymoon period. Uh, and I think for certain industries as well, it's, it's an exciting time to invest in the Philippines because you got that six year window, uh, that's going to develop where you're really going to understand what the policy is, uh, for whatever, uh, highly regulated industry you're talking about. Uh, so there, there's certainly things to be positive about. And, you know, there's, there's a number of industries that have done well despite the pandemic. BPO industry is really a standout in that regard. But uh, you talk to the semiconductor industry, they grew throughout the pandemic. Their big limiting factor was, was the uh, <clears throat> microchip shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you see a lot of investment in renewable energies right now in the Philippines. That's another place where we have a lot of people contacting us about doing renewable energy investment. Uh, there'll be a, a period of optimism about mining potentially. I don't know how that long that will last. Mining is a real troubled industry in the Philippines from the regulatory perspective, but there'll, there'll be some optimism uh, when the elections happen in all likelihood. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely opportunities and there's uh, things to be excited about, uh, but uh, there's, there's some big risks too, right? You know, uh, yeah, and I think we'll go closer to election day, uh, whether or not there's going to be some kind of political instability or major concerns about if the elections are fair or not, that kind of thing. Got it. Well, Greg, as always, you've been an oracle of knowledge and I encourage anyone to to certainly get your newsletter and get in touch with you. Um, and so how can they learn more? Yeah, so just email me at uh, greg at psaconsultancy.com. Uh, check out our website. Uh, and yeah, we'll, uh, you know, we'll sign you up for a free trial, maybe that kind of thing and uh, have a discussion. Perfect. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you. That was Greg Wyatt, Director of Business Intelligence from PSA, which is Philippines Strategic Advisors. 
As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And if you want to ask us anything, then just drop us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.